Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Facts and Jewish Faith. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. I want to chat with you this morning about angels. You know, when we think of angels, we normally think of adorable Renaissance figures with wings and cherubic faces looking down on humanity with bemused delight. Or we picture celestial beings with halos and human features. However, Judaism also has a place for these heavenly creatures. Angels have been a part of Jewish religion since its earliest days. Perhaps you remember the story in Numbers chapters 22 through 24, when an angel of God stands before the sorcerer Bilam and his donkey brandishing a sword. You remember that story, yes? Uh, Balaam has been asked by the uh, king Balak to curse the Jewish people. And uh, Balaam accepts the uh, assignment. And on the way to uh, curse the Jewish people, Balaam is riding uh, his donkey And the donkey sees an angel of God standing before him. And he turns aside, drawing a beating from the sorcerer Balaam. Balaam beats his donkey. Donkey continues on his way. And the second time the animal saw an angel waving a sword, The donkey pressed against the wall, small wall, crushing Bilam's foot. And again, the sorcerer beats the donkey. And the third time, the donkey saw the angel. She lay down in the spot under Bilam, who beat her severely with a stick. And at that moment, Receiving a beating from the sorcerer, the donkey speaks, asking Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? So I want to chat this morning with you about Judaism's approach to angels but not the adorable Renaissance figures with wings and cherubim faces that adorn churches or the celestial beings with halos and wings that also can be part of Christian imagery, but a different imagery as constructed by my faith, Judaism. The earliest mention of Malachim, or angels, in the Torah comes when Abraham is recuperating from his circumcision. The Bible says that three individuals who are understood to be Malachim, angels, come to Abraham. Despite the fact that he is physically inconvenienced, he immediately welcomes them, 
offers them what they need in order to wash their feet and runs around his homestead offering a festive meal to be prepared in their honor. Now, did Abraham recognize that these individuals were not human beings, but angels in human form out to accomplish their mission? Hard to say. At any rate, Abraham took them and their message very seriously. And sure enough, their prophecy that Abraham and Sarah would be parents within the year despite their advanced age came true. And many of you know the story found in Genesis 2, 22, in which Abraham takes his only son, his most beloved son, Isaac, to the top of Mount Moriah. There, following God's commands, he prepares to sacrifice Isaac. And we're told that an angel of God, a malach, Adonai, spoke to him out of the bush and says, Abraham, Abraham. When Abraham turns to look at where direction the voice is coming from, he does not see an angel. He sees a ram. And of course, as you know, he takes that ram and sacrifices it in place of Isaac. The ram horn becomes the symbol of one of the most holy days in Jewish tradition, Rosh Hashanah. The next mention of angel comes in the life of Jacob, Abraham's grandson, who encounters them twice. At one point, he sends angelic messengers to speak with his estranged brother, Esau. Jacob is no doubt afraid of his brother and therefore relies on the Malachim to break the ice and seeking a rapprochement with his estranged sibling. Interestingly, this episode seems to demonstrate that human beings have the power to use angels on their own behalf. Jacob's next angelic account occurs in a dream in which he is wrestling with a ish, a man, until daybreak. Was the man really a human being? Or was it an angel in the guise of a human being? The tradition is that this so-called man really was an angel. One of the most interesting outgrowths of the wrestling match between Jacob and the angel was that God changed Jacob's name to Israel, literally the Hebrew word for Yisrael, the name by which the Jewish people is known, meaning to wrestle with God. And how could we forget the dream that Jacob has on his way to meet with his brother Esau, in which he takes a rock and uses it as a pillow and has a dream that night of a sulam, a ladder reaching up from the spot on which he lay to heaven. And he streams of angels going up and coming down. Wow. 
angels are certainly part of the life of the uh, patriarchs. Angels continue to play a role in traditional Jewish thought. It is said that when a Jew comes home from synagogue on Friday night, two angels, one good and one bad, accompany him or her. Of course, it's a uh, superstition, or maybe not. If the house to which the Jew returns is neat and clean and a beautiful Shabbat table is set, the good angel gets to say, may it be this week, this way next week. And the bad angel has no choice but to say, amen. Essentially meaning, so be it, or I agree. If on the other hand, the house is in disarray, There is no Sabbath table and the family is in discord. The bad angel gets to grin and say, may it be this way next week. Leaving the good angel no choice but what to say. Amen. That's why traditionally the first song that is sung at the Shabbat table upon return from synagogue or when the family sits down to eat is entitled Shalom Alechem. The title literally means welcome to you, and it is sung to none other than ministrating angels who accompany the Jew home from synagogue. Another aspect of Jewish faith in which angels appear is on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. If you go into a synagogue on Yom Kippur, several things are different. First of all, many of the male congregants are wearing a garment called a kittel, a white burial shroud. This white garment symbolizes purity to which the soul is restored on that day. It also, according to tradition, symbolizes the purity of the angels themselves Normally, we do not live like angels. We are imperfect beings, and we also have our physical needs for food and drink. On Yom Kippur, since we neither eat nor drink, we are much closer to the angels, so we dress accordingly, all in white. Moreover, there is one change in the prayers on Yom Kippur that reflects the fact that we are much closer to the angels than on other days. Normally, when we say the first line of the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which is found in Deuteronomy 6, in which we acknowledge the openness of God, we recite the next line in a whisper, an undertone. That line is, in Hebrew, Baruch Shem Kavod Malchut Olam Vayed, blesses the name of God's glorious kingdom forever and ever. According to Jewish tradition, this line is actually the primary line of prayer for angels during the course of that day. That's why we whisper it the rest of the year. On Yom Kippur, when we are so much more like the angels, we actually say the sentence out loud, just like the angels. Angels also arise throughout the normal weekday and Sabbath prayer services. For example, on a typical morning, we recite a prayer called the Kedusha. 
in which we acknowledge the holiness of God. A key line from the Kedusha reads, Kadosh, 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 Adonai Tzvaot Malo Chol Ha'aretz Kavodo, in English, Holy, holy is God. The whole earth is full of God's glory. And of course, some of you will resonate with that uh, pattern from the church in which we say, in which it is recited, Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus. This is also a statement that the ranks of the angels say to each other every day. Similarly, prayers spoken at the conclusion of the Sabbath also reflect the concept that angels exist and praise God on a regular basis. And who could forget the angel in the story of Job? The angel known as Satan, Satan, who plays such a primary role in the story of Job, perhaps more on Job on another tradition. In Jewish tradition, there are several classes of angels. One group simply exists in order to praise God. According to Jewish tradition, all angels are incorporeal. They have no body or physical needs. They also lack free will, meaning that they have no choice but to do anything other than the will of God. In that sense, they are extremely different from human beings who are said to be a little lower than the angels, because we act in our capacity to do evil, a capacity the angels lack. Another kind of angel is created every time we human beings perform a good deed. This angel will ultimately argue on our behalf before God when we are judged for the way we conduct our entire lives. When we perform and act well and out of good intentions, we are said to create the strongest possible sort of angel. Similarly, when we do wrong, we are said to create an accusing sort of being that will testify against us on our personal day of judgment. The Talmud speaks of yet another kind of angel called a sar. The Hebrew word for a prince in every nation in the world is said to have a sar, a princely angel, looking after its interests and keeping God informed on what is happening with that nation's. Stories of angels are so prevalent in Jewish history and prayer that they have to be considered a universally accepted aspect of traditional Judaism, whatever conclusions we as individuals may draw about them. The bottom line is, we Jews understand angels as agents of divine will. God channels God's will through angels in order to achieve various tasks in this world. Let me give you an example of how Judaism treats a well-known angel, Gavriel or Gabriel. You know, there is, uh, in most traditions, a series of prayers that are said when someone goes to bed. Usually... Children say them, but not exclusively. The Bedtime Shema is a collection of liturgical texts that Jews recite before going to sleep, including but not limited to the traditional Shema that I mentioned a while ago. Near the end of this liturgy is a prayer asking God to protect us 
and guard our souls, not uncommon in bedtime prayers. But in the Jewish prayer, how do we ask God to protect us and guard us? Through the holy watchers, God's angels, who walk through the night. Specifically, the text names four, Michael to my right, Gavriel to my left, Uriel before me, and Raphael to my back. Of these four angels, Gabriel appears most commonly in Jewish text. He is one of at least seven archangels or focal angels who are known in liturgy and biblical commentary to be the highest or most powerful of the angelic legions. Gabriel's first mention in the Tanakh comes in the book of Daniel. After Daniel experiences a prophecy and he does not understand it, Gabriel comes to him in Daniel 8 and interprets the vision for him. A year later, Gabriel again appears to Daniel in 9.27. He tells Daniel that he has been at war and is going to fight those who remain. Nothing is explained further about this battle or about Gabriel's specific abilities, although he is referenced thereafter as a warrior and holy protector. In the pseudo-epigraphical book of Enoch, Gabriel is an avenging angel sent to incite sinners into war. And in the Talmud, God sends Gabriel to smite the Assyrians, and Gabriel replies that his sword has been sharpened since the sick days of creation. In other words, he was in some way created to be an avenging angel. Most references to Gabriel in traditional literature, including the Talmud, and the bedtime Shema liturgy depict him as the emissary of God's strength. In fact, the Hebrew name Gavriel or Gavar-el translates to God's might or God's power. At times, he is represented by the element of fire and at other times, water. Regardless, this angel is always known to be either the absolute strongest are among the strongest of all angels. You might be asking yourself, why do angels play such a prominent role in Jewish tradition? You might think that angels do not seem to fit inside a monotheistic faith. God can presumably accomplish anything. So what's the function of an angel. If they are doing God's bidding, they are unnecessary, and if they are opposing God, then how can any heavenly creature thought the will of an omnipotent God? Some medieval Jewish commentators propose that angels are necessary because they perform tasks that are beneath the dignity of God's personal involvement. Others, mostly moderns who understand heaven's agents as a way of giving God cover, assume that the angels permit God to distance himself in a way from certain deeds or obligations. But part of the allure of angels is also the colorful and humanly compelling notion of a representative God who is more human-like and therefore more approachable in imagination. 
for example, an outlandishly otherworldly, as outlandishly and otherworldly as Ezekiel's description of angels may seem to us with its depiction of four faces, animal countenances, four wings, wheels with eyes, fire, and so on, it is still more understandable than a god one cannot see. Angels are used to give God a little cover, give God an opportunity to do that which we human beings really think beneath God. Ultimately, angels have an ancillary role in both the Bible and later literature. Judaism insists God, and God alone, is the initiator and arbiter of what happens here on earth. Rabbi Juden teaches in the Talmud that God wishes to be directly addressed. If trouble comes upon someone, let him not cry out to Michael or Gabriel, but let him cry out unto me. And as Jews recite each year during Passover, the Lord brought us out from Egypt, not by an angel, not by a seraph, a fiery angel, and not by a messenger, but the Holy One alone. So I want to share with you one of my favorite stories about angels. It is often told to young children on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the Jewish year. Once upon a time, God spoke to an angel and said, For this new year, bring me the most precious thing in the world. The angel bowed low to God and then winged her way to earth. Searching everywhere, the angel visited forests, mountaintops, and soft green meadows. But although she saw bright butterflies and flowers, nothing seemed quite right. Nothing seemed to meet God's challenge to bring the most precious thing back to heaven. Then, peeking through a window, she saw a mother holding her baby. As she glazed down, gazed down at her child, the mother's smile was full of love and tenderness. The angel thought, this mother's smile must be the most precious thing in the world. I will take it to God. Gently, the angel took the mother's smile without the mother even noticing she had so many smiles left that she would never miss just one. And with great excitement, the angel flew back to heaven and showed the smile to God who answered, This is indeed wonderful. The smile of love that a mother gives her child. But I don't think it is the most precious thing in the world. Angel was slightly discombobulated. So the angel went back to earth and searched again everywhere. On a starry night in the midst of a deep dark forest, she heard exquisite music. It was the song of a solitary nightingale singing among the trees. 
The song was so beautiful that the angel folded her wings and listened for many hours. And then she took the song to God, but upon hearing the music, God answered, This is indeed very special, but it is still not the most precious thing in the world. The angel was getting tired, but she knew she could never give up, so again she flew back to earth. This time she arrived in the big city where she saw crowds of people. They were all in a hurry to get somewhere. They pushed each other as they passed quickly in the streets, and they waited impatiently in long lines at banks and supermarkets. Standing at one busy intersection was an old man. He was waiting across the street, but there were so many cars that he didn't know when to try. People kept rushing past him, never pausing to notice his predicament. The old man seemed dizzy and confused, and just then, a young girl came walking up to him. She had noticed him hesitating and looking ill and felt sorry for him. Excuse me, she said to him shyly, but may I help you across the street and walk you home? Gracefully. He gazed into her kind eyes and answered, Yes, thank you, young lady. I was feeling so tired and weak. And slowly and steadily, they made their way to his apartment, which was nearby. Now, the angel was watching all the time, and although the old man and the young girl couldn't see the angel, the angel was so happy. This really must be the most precious thing in the world, a kind deed, a helping hand. It has so many different names, but it's the same everywhere. If we can help each other, we can have a peaceful world. So I will take this story of this kind deed to God. It must be what I have been looking for all the time. But God said no. Go once more, angel. You are on the right track, and I feel sure that this time you will find what we seek. Look everywhere in the cities and the forests and the schools and the homes but especially look into the hearts of people. With a little bit of disappointment, the angel again winged her way to earth, and she looked in so many places, still she could not find just the right thing. Tired from her ceaseless searching, she sat dejected on a rock, resting and thinking. As she sat there, she heard something, the sound of someone crying. It was not a little child crying, but a grown man He was walking through the woods with tears rolling down his cheeks. Soon he said, The special holy days will come, and I am thinking I was cruel and mean to my dear brother. We had a fight about something unimportant. They were harsh words, and now we haven't spoken to each other in several weeks. Today, this day, I will go to him and ask him to forgive me. Then I will pray to God to forgive me too, for I am truly sorry that my unthinking anger has caused so much unhappiness. Another tear rolled down the man's cheek. Then the angel knew that she had found the answer. Being an angel, she was invisible, so she flew up to the grieving man and greatly and gently caught one of the tears that were rolling down from his eyes. The man thought to himself, what a soft and fragrant breeze is surrounding me. Suddenly I feel better. Perhaps this is a sign that all will be well. And the angel flew away. She flew away to God, and in a tiny bottle she held the one tear that she had collected. She held it up to God, and God smiled upon the angel. And the radiance of that smile filled the whole world like the sun coming out suddenly from behind a dark cloud. Then God spoke, my faithful angel, this is the most precious thing in the world.
the tear of someone who is truly starry. Angels. Angels teach us to act in ways that illuminate our best and sometimes our worst intentionalities. Angels are the ways that Judaism tells us that God is present in our lives each and every moment. This is Rabbi Stephen Garten for Jewish Facts and Jewish Faiths wishing you a good day. Shalom. Shalom.